the word of the Lord from John chapter 17, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out. Just to be clear, this is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. When devout pilgrims travel to Jerusalem and live in tents made of branches for the week, they do this by God's command to remember. To remember their ancestors' time in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land when they lived in tents as they wandered. God was with them there. He led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He even had his own tent, the tabernacle, pitched at the center of the camp. And to assure the people of his presence and his help, he dwelt there inside that tent. Whenever the tabernacle was set up, the people could watch the pillar of cloud descend and enter into the most holy place. God doesn't dwell in a tent anymore. A thousand years or so before our gospel reading, King Solomon saw to it that a temple was built. And so God had a dwelling made of stone in the middle of Jerusalem. He didn't insist on being there. In fact, as time went on, the people made him unwelcome. Rather than honor his word, they turned to sin. Rather than worship him, they turned to false gods. In fact, they eventually figured that it made sense to start setting up the statues of their own little idols in the temple itself, since they were so special and helpful and personally meaningful to them. Since they preferred these little knickknacks as their gods, the Lord withdrew from the temple. And when the Babylonians arrived to destroy Jerusalem, it turned out that the non-existent deities had all the power of garden gnomes to stop them. The city and the temple were destroyed. The prophet Ezekiel was one of those carried off to Babylon, and he proclaimed God's word to his fellow exiles. In one vision, he saw the temple in Jerusalem unharmed, and he saw a river flowing out of the temple growing wider and deeper as it went along. As it went along, it gave life to the desert. It flowed to the Dead Sea, a sea so salty that it couldn't sustain life. But when this river reached the sea in the prophet's vision... It brought life with it so that plants and trees flourished along the banks. Animals inhabited the forests and fish swam in the waters. 
The vision proclaimed that although the people had forsaken God, God had not forsaken them. As promised, he would restore life to his people. To remember this, the people of Jerusalem had an annual ritual where they brought water from the pool of Siloam to the temple, anticipating the day when rivers would flow out of the temple. This celebration took place every year as part of the Feast of Booths. It's on the minds of the people in John chapter 7. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we had this theme going on a lot during Lent, which seems like ages ago now. But hopefully, the bells are ringing and the pieces are falling into place. Jesus is the Word made flesh, tenting among his people. He is the new tabernacle and the new temple, who brings living water because he is God, giving life by speaking his word. As tens of thousands of devout pilgrims crowd Jerusalem and surround the temple looking for God, God in the flesh stands among them and cries out, Here I am. Except that isn't quite his point. Our text says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Doesn't that figure? I mean, it makes total sense that if Jesus is talking about water, the Holy Spirit can't be far away. You first hear of the Holy Spirit in the second verse of the Bible, in Genesis 1, hovering over the face of the waters. When Jesus himself is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Where water, there's spirit, it seems, when it comes to Jesus. So here, at the Feast of Booths, as people remember the vision that water will flow from the temple to bring life where there is only death, Jesus declares that the Holy Spirit will proceed from him to bring life to those dead in sin. It hasn't happened yet when Jesus says this. The Spirit has not been given in this sense because Jesus is not yet glorified. He will be glorified soon at another feast, the upcoming feast of Passover, when he is rejected, betrayed, and crucified at the hands of sinners. At the Passover, when pilgrims gather to remember that God once saved them from death and bondage by the blood of a lamb, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will be sacrificed to save them from sin and from bondage to death. That's when Jesus is glorified, because it is his glory to save sinners by dying in their place so that they might live. And now that he's glorified, it's time for the Holy Spirit to be given. Risen again, just before he ascends... Jesus tells his disciples that before they go to all nations, they should wait in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit. 
Which brings us finally to the third feast, today's feast, Pentecost. Once again, Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims who have come to worship at the temple. The action isn't at the temple that day, though. It's where the apostles and the other first Christians are gathered. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire rest on each one of them. It sounds a little odd, perhaps, but it makes sense with the Old Testament in mind. The word for wind is the same as the word for spirit, so the sound of the wind announces that the Holy Spirit has been given. Fire in the Old Testament is a sign of God's presence, so fire here indicates that the Holy Spirit is God. Even better, those divided tongues of fire resting on each one of them, well, that indicates the Spirit isn't just there in general, but he dwells with each believer individually. Peter confirms this as he begins his sermon in our first lesson in Acts 2, declaring that it is God's will and delight to pour out his Spirit on sons and daughters, old and young, men and women. He will go on to declare that this has happened because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has died for the sins of the world and he is risen again. So now, for each of those believers, this is true. Out of his heart flows rivers of living water. Now it's here, I will confess, that I feel a little bit stymied as a preacher because we once again have so great and marvelous a truth that we really don't have the words to give it justice. The best I can do is some sort of illustration that we can all understand and then say, but it's far, far better than that. So here goes. Imagine that you receive an invitation to a feast at the home of some very important, very respected individual. You are completely honored to be included on the guest list, and you're quite happy to attend and just know that you're included, and that within this banquet hall, you're in the general vicinity of this very important individual. That's enough of an honor right there. But then he pulls up a chair next to yours and says, If you don't mind, I'd like to eat at your table. It's like that but is far, far better than that. See, here's the comparison. The Lord has made you and placed you within this creation, which is quite an honor by itself. He has further given his son up to death in order to redeem you from your sin, which is completely an undeserved gift. It would really be quite a privilege to know that you are part of this creation and a member of his church with God in the general vicinity. But it's far, far better than that. God is not content to have you in his general vicinity. He draws far nearer than just pulling up a chair alongside. He chooses instead to dwell in you. The risen sun doesn't just say, look at me, I'm alive again somewhere in the same dimension you inhabit. No, he says, eat and drink my body and blood. 
And while our bodies normally take food and transform it until it is lost in us, Christ's body and blood transform us to be like him, holy and righteous. And this will be finally and fully realized at the resurrection on the last day. Likewise, God pours out his spirit upon you, and now the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's why St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because the Father has given you the Spirit for the sake of his Son. Now, if that sounds baptismal, you're on the right track. By water and the word, the Lord has made you his own and made himself to be your God who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So his living waters flow in you, making you alive in him. And then, by the praises you speak, that living water flows by his word to others who hear. It's a good thing to meditate upon, to take to heart. We can look at those Israelites of Ezekiel's time and marvel at their folly of setting up statues of false gods in the temple of the one true God, assuming perhaps that he wouldn't notice or wouldn't mind despite his clear-cut law. If you want greater folly, though, then think of unrepented sin within you. Remember, you are not on the fringe of the kingdom where God might not notice, like the junior high kid who sneaks behind the dumpster to smoke a cigarette during recess. The triune God doesn't just dwell near you, but in you. Each unrepented sin is an idol set up in his temple, inviting his anger or, worse, his exit. Watch out, too, because you might be tempted to think that since you have God in your heart, you have no need for God and his means of grace. But in one of those paradoxes of faith, the Lord dwells inside you because he continues to work outside of you. If you stop hearing his word and receiving his supper, you'll start to mistake the garbage of your own thoughts as his truth, and you'll eventually crowd him out with the ravings of your old sinful nature. Get rid of the rivers of life, and you'll eventually return to the dust. Let Jesus' words in our gospel reading not be received as law, however. The message isn't, you can't goof off because God is near. No, ponder what you were, a lost sinner, and rejoice in what God has made you to be. His holy temple in which he dwells. Sin resents the attention, but faith wonders gratefully at the presence. The Lord dwells in you to give you life, so that you might have it abundantly, forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.